And like multiple voices are talking out at once, it's like driving me absolutely nuts. Sounds great. Perfect podcast. So as I spark this joint, welcome to Radio Free Earth, Brother Tim. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited about this. What a crazy fucking world Mendo was. It was crazy. It really was. This place was, it was basically the bikers, you know. Okay. And it was the rednecks. And it was some of the cannabis people, and it was the crankers. And it was this motley group of mixture of all them uh, that was, I mean, this place was uh, called, uh, this nickname for this was the home of the night people. That's what they called oh, this at the, okay. down at the police department. So somebody else was, was uh, here, not you. Before I got this, there was only th- three previous owners before me. Okay. And the guy that owned it died and gave it to his daughter. She rented it out to these crankers. So I'm living across the street, and I'm like looking at people looking at me through the windows at night and shit. And I'm thinking, what? Am I, am I fucking paranoid? For real? Yeah, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm, am I paranoid? Because I'm not, well, I'm not doing drugs and shit. But I'm like, but you're I'm really there. good. Well, I'm across the street. I own 160 oh, okay. acres over there. Oh, they're still here. So I was gotcha. across the street, okay. and I was like realizing that people were like looking at me and checking me out, and like I could hear them and doing things. And it was like, who the, what the fuck is this? Well, it turned out that over here. She ran out to crankers. There were 23 crankers living here. And they were trading, <laughs> oh, they were trading uh, dump space for crank. They were stripping everything. The place behind my shop was 10 <laughs> feet high for 200 yards with garbage. They, and the year before I got this, they'd had uh, attempted murders. They blew up labs, rapes. I mean, you name it. This place was fucking insane. This was the hardest core place in the county that there was. They, that's why they called it the home of the night people. Insane. And, and then so you got a, some sort of deal to buy it somehow? I got, I got the, uh, there were tanks out in front. And they, everybody had to get the MTBE out. It was back then when they put the additives in, then they realized how poisonous they were. So you had to take it all out. Oh. So you had to do all these tests on the tanks. And the tests were 50000 the basic test, and then you could have up to a million dollars for cleanup. So this was right on the creeks here. Gas tanks. Yeah. And they figured oh, that this, this was a service station. Out in front, yeah. Okay. So they figured that that nobody was ever going to get a clean bill on this. It was going to cost hundreds of thousands or a million dollars to clean this up. Right. So nobody would put the money up to 50 grand. I just got out of jail. I meditate every day for 50 years, and I got this intuitive hit. <coughs> put the 50,000 bucks up. Just bank it. Roll it. Every dime you got, put it in there. So I told the lady, I said, you know, Rita, I'm going to do this. I'm probably going to lose my money. So I want a great deal, if it's good. Okay. So I'm willing to do this, roll the dice, but I want it for 175,000 bucks for the, the place here. Okay. Uh, 150 acres and C2 zoning. This got C2 zoning, only place outside of downtown. This got C2's highest form of commercial. I could build apartments. I could build lot parking lots. You could do anything. C2 zoning is like what they do for downtown okay. places. They were like, how did you get C2 zone? Well, when they rezoned this all the way to Oregon uh, for uh, grazing, and they took away the commercial because it was all commercial. Then you had to apply for commercial. Well, this guy had a gas station, a campground, a store. He had everything, so they gave him C2. So, nice, right? Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So then I, um, I did that. It ended up being uh, no cleanup, cleanest site in California. So I got this place for 175 grand, but I had to kick out all the crankers. Then, you then, had to. Oh well, yeah, she you left. Like, she left, and all of a sudden I had to fucking get them all out of here. Hey they guys, weren't, they weren't very happy. They weren't very happy about that. I bet. Well, neither was their kind of their leader, who was the, one of the enforcers for the Hell's Angels. That I ended up getting into like three years of war- warfare with him. That was a gentleman you. Yeah, Mad Mike or the Antichrist, and so. 
Those, those were his nicknames. had Michael the Antichrist? His nickname was the Antichrist. Oh, yeah, no. that was his nickname. Oh. Okay, so, um, so then uh, I get this place, I have to do it, and I got people staring at me over there, and then they're robbing me, and I can't figure out what the fuck is going on. I mean, all of a sudden, I'm like trying to grow over there, and I've just got shit going on every night. And I'm like, I, I mean, I thought I'm paranoid, and people are like, uh, no, they're actually out there. So that's when I got my first, uh, you know. <laughs> no, they are actually, they are actually there, they are actually watching you. Oh, yeah, I had uh, warfare with them, combat. We, we went around quite a few times. I mean, it was, it was gnarly. I remember when I first moved here, they still had Redwood Choppers. Oh, yeah. And they were, uh, it was so funny, they were, they were always trying to get me to hang out with them because I had a Harley at the time. And I'd go buy something, they're like, you seem like our kind of guy. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like, yeah, but you are, you should come hang out with us. And then I gave them the line, I was like, my, my wife said I couldn't hang out with you guys. <laughs> and they laugh, they're like, oh, you let your wife run your life? And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I just walked out. I was like, sorry, guys. I'm not, I'm not Hell's Angels material, I'm just not. Yeah. Well, uh, so I've got then, nothing. I got nothing. It's the HAs on that note. No, I mean I they're know. they're they're doing what they're doing. I just stay out of the fucking out of their way. Yeah. Well, yeah, I do too. I just yeah. make peace with that. Yeah. I've had a lot of interactions with them now. When I first moved to Venice, in the early '90s, early mid '90s, I was from Northern California, where we just and I was really into the Grateful Dead, and I had totally renounced violence because I used to fight a lot, and I just you know it was just peace and LSD. And I was having a lot of luck, and then I met these really cool guys that were a member of a local Venice area alternative social organization. But I didn't know anything about like that. And so I ended up doing a deal with them and getting myself home invasion robbed a week or two later. And huh. I, I was, I, you know, people told me who it was. And so that was my first brush up against organized crime where it was like, okay, like, I could try to do something to these first guys, but then they got like 40 homies, and then oh, no, I, no. I had to do the math of if I go to jail, I'm gonna be bummed. I'm yeah. not gonna get any pussy. I'm not yeah. gonna be going out. And like, well, if they go no. to jail, it's like summer camp, and they get to see all their friends. Yeah. Well, and no. They're just like, you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna move from this place immediately. I'm just gonna be much more careful. I'm gonna get along. And anytime I come up against organized crime elements during, because I have you know the majority of my weed uh -huh. career. Yeah. I just slink into that. I keep really good and just like disappear into the into the ethers. You know, like. Yeah. This is yeah. awesome. Oh, I just got wind of what's actually going on here. Cool. I'll be back next week. I promise. And just never come back. Don't owe anybody money. Just disappear. You know, and I got a policy since I was a kid uh, in the business because I grew up in the business. And I was taught once you lost something, you don't go get it back. Because if you go do something against somebody else Thank at their you, place, man. then that's premeditated. Whatever it is, murder, robbery, there's no longer that he got you. It means you premeditated and went after somebody. Yes. And then when you go to court, you're fucked. You are. You're, you're done. There's, and I mean, that's just not going to work. I've experienced that same thing. I'm glad that you say that. Yeah. Because I've experienced that same thing several times. You know, we all yeah. have. And, and I look at it, two things. One thing that Mendo taught me was if your spring stops putting out water, you don't start digging at your spring. You go find another spring. You build a new spring box and you find water, right? Wow. And then the other thing for me is anytime this shit happens, I just take a breath and I ask myself, why am I doing this? And for me... I'm doing this because of the message of the plants and the message of mushrooms, the message of the plant yeah. teachers. And their message is never violent retribution. Their message is compassion and learning. And I'm like, if I'm going to be in this space and I'm going to call myself an ambassador of this plant, mm -hmm. then I have to behave the way the plant tells me to. Yeah. And the plants tell me, go to the, go to the river, kid. You fucked up. Yeah. Well, I, I learned that lesson as a kid and a really dumb lesson. It was, it was 20 years old. We were partying. It was just... Uh, you know, I was with a friend, he, he'd gotten job by these people, 
and he was really angry about it. It really hit him hard, and he wanted to go, go get, get it back. Right? And so he said, look, will you guys just drive me there? Just drive. You don't got to do anything. I'll go up, I'll take care of it, and then just you can drive me. And I made the dumbass mistake of backing this guy up and saying, you know what, I'll fucking help you out. Let's just go fucking do it, right? So we stop at this place, get up there. He goes to the front, opens the door, and starts. this girl comes out and starts screaming, right? So he's screaming at her. We can, we can kind of hear this, but not really. We're far enough away that we, we can just barely hear it. So then all of a sudden, she starts screaming, got her hands raised. Then the guy comes out, and he's fucking screaming. Right, and they're not like, they're not, they're not acting like people that would have robbed somebody. It's like something, something's off, something's there. So this guy was still going to go after them, right? And all of a sudden he comes back, and it turns out the people had moved. Oh no! He was on a couple that had nothing to do with it, and I'm like, get the fuck! I'm like, he jumped in that car. We went flying out of there because, of course, they called the cops. And yeah, you're talking. Oh, oh, real Dude. fucking shit, man. I'm fucking, I'm in Gilroy heading to Capitola. I don't know if you know where Gilroy is. Yes. But I'm, I'm heading over that mountain to Capitola, Santa Cruz, <laughs> as fast as I fucking can. I'm like, God, get me out of this. I swear I'll never fucking do a goddamn dumb thing like this again. I've been, I've been I mean, I've been raised religious. I'm spiritual and everything else. And I realized yeah. at that moment I'd made the fucking biggest mistake of my right. life. And I could be looking at five to ten years. If you're you know, fucking, yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, well, first offense, I'm thinking I'm a kid and shit. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but as I'm going through all that, I'm fucking just flying. And we're like, oh my God, I fucking, I got to Santa Cruz Capitola, man. I dumped that car. It was my, uh, my girlfriend's car. It was like a car we'd borrowed, of course, stupid shit. And uh, we fucking dumped that car. And my dad was a major attorney, right, at the time, okay. we, until he died. And so we just hit out and stuff. And all of a sudden, he got a call from, I guess, her mother or something else said, he said, what were you guys fucking doing with that car? And uh, I was like, Dad, I, you know, I just looked at him and I was like, I, I remember lying to him because I didn't want to get him in trouble with the whole thing. And he was like, dude, I don't want to hear any more. Just don't fucking say a word and never fucking do anything like this. And because he basically realized very quickly, because he was a very smart liberal attorney, he just realized it because the whole story came out. Because the, the guy that was robbing them was screaming at them that they had robbed him and where were the people? So they told the cops that he showed up thinking he was going to get paid for something that had been taken from him. So they already had known the story of what had happened. So the my dad, the first well, they, well, they, well, yeah, the, the, the cops had heard the story. Just so when it came hard. out, my dad heard the story that the charge was that somebody showed up to get paid for another robbery, and these people were innocently there. And so he was like, you know, and I was like, oh my fucking god, it's close enough that I could fucking go. And so I for about, well, whatever about. 30, 60 days, I fucking lived on the edge of my life praying every day to God that I would never do something so stupid in my life again. And I didn't. I mean, I've never, I mean, I've faced people with guns. I've never backed down to anybody. I've been hogtied. I, mean, I can tell you all, but I've never, ever consciously, it's like, you can't do that because you don't know what's going to happen. I ran into this, a similar thing where my best friend, when we were both, we were like 19, 20, he uh, went to Spark Professional. Sure. Uh, he got robbed from some LSD, and he knew the kid's mom was a crank and weed dealer. And he set him up with these guys he just met that were just fresh out of prison. And I was like, do not do this, please. And he's like, no, they're just going to go get some money. And they, you know, they got there, and they changed the plan. And it went pretty horrific. And then my friend came to my house a couple of days later crying and white as a ghost. He's like, I, I did it, and here's what they did. And it was just horrible. And I had to literally talk him into it and then deliver him to the cops. I was like, I'm just taking you to the cops. 
you're gonna, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an outlaw, I'm big on the no snitch rule until you do horrible shit to other human beings. And then it's like, sorry, fuck off. Yeah. And I took him to the cops and he had to turn him in. And luckily those guys went to prison forever, but he ended up going to prison for seven years, just like you said. Oh, yeah. And it was so enlightening to me because I already was in the Grateful Dead thing and the acid and not wanting to hurt anybody. And I just saw, it was just such an easy teaching of like, the moment you leash demons on someone, mm-hmm. like they're not gonna do normal shit, they're gonna do demon shit. And so anytime you open up that that avenue, it's not like, oh, I'm just gonna go get my money back. And that guy's gonna be like, here's your money, bro. It's totally cool. Yeah, yeah. Like you actually just like set off this. Oh, they could have been murders. Like, all of a sudden it's like yeah. a room full of rat traps. Yeah. You know what I mean? The one goes off yeah. and it's like. And then well, no, the, no, it gets portrayed differently though. When you do something stupid like that, it's more like this. You're sitting there and you're having some beers and you've done a couple lines of Coke and, you're, and the guy's like, look, you know, telling you about what these guys have done to him and stuff. And he's like, yeah, but you know what? Really, it's just the one guy. He's really the only one's ever there. And uh, I know where the safe is, you know, and I know where it is. I can just fucking go in and just fucking take the guy and just knock him out. And we'll just fucking take the safe really quick. You know, the whole thing becomes like, you know, and I've been to this place 20 times, 40 times. It's all like, and so all of a sudden you just, and this guy's really, he is a friend. And and you you know, the story's true. They did fuck with this guy and rob him. And so it's just a kid thing. And it's just like, you know, until you're in front of that place and you're listening to that shit screaming and you're like, what was I fucking thinking? But you know what? It's, uh, It's all life. It's all life, but you know, that so was that story. Did you grow up in Santa Cruz? I grew up in San Jose. Oh, I grew up San okay. Jose, California. My okay. uh, my family's like old school, uh, third gen, you know, way back. Uh, my uncle was the oldest reigning priest in the Bay Area, 50 years there. Uh, my fa- uncle, other uncle, was number three on redevelopment. They redeveloped San San Jose the last 30 years, from like 80s to like. Wow. He was the redevelopment. My other uncle was a major attorney, um, and. Uh, you know, major player there, and uh, you know, my family goes way back. Yeah, my dad, my grandfather, has a building, Leninger Center. He was one of the architects uh, for downtown, and my other grandfather had one of the first newspapers in Santa Clara um, back That's in the day. Cool. He was uh, Har- from Harvard, graduated, and um, yeah. So my family are like liberal, true Christians. My grandma was like the most Christian, wonderful person in the world. She'd like uh, go to church every day, and then she'd take food to shut-ins after my grandpa died, like for. And that's like 300 prayers for people each day. She had a list and stuff. But I mean, she was really cool. And my mom was too. So that was a great family. I thought everybody had a great family like that. And uh, I, we, we start. We moved to Sunnyvale. My so dad. When was when? When did you hit your teens, like high school? Yeah, I was gonna say. So so we moved to Sunnyvale, and I was in eighth grade. It was like that's 12, 12 years old. Uh, 70, probably, okay. it's probably 70 because I went to high school went to, and that was when I first smoked pot. So that was the first time I smoked pot. I, luckily we had this Hispanic kid in class. He'd be the one to have the weed, right? And uh, we're in eighth grade and uh, Tony Del Rosa, I'll never forget his name. And we went down to the, the junior high school uh, after school and he had this pot, man. And we ended up smoking this and I just like laid there. And I, I you know, obviously the first time you just rock, 12 years old too, or whatever that was, eight year old. Eight, and I was higher in shape, of course, I had a great time. And Tony and I became best friends. and. Uh, that's where it started, and but it was just a you know obviously something I liked to do at that point as a kid. But then we moved over to Capitola. My parents had a had a there was a house on the two blocks from the beach. It was an old bar wow. called the Local, and uh, it was the hottest bar around. And so then there was a two story house on top, actually about a three really at the top. And so my my dad and the uncles and sisters had bought it, and then they were all using it for a vacation house we got to use. Oh, cool. But then my dad bought them out, and we moved in there. Okay. And so then all of a sudden I lived downstairs in the keg room. With the black lights in the keg room and the pool Sweet. table, and uh, yeah, now I'm like a 14-year-old kid, and I'm going to high school, and it's like I'm in heaven. Uh, well, the, the first year I actually com- I commuted over the hill to Midi, Archbishop Midi, because I was still going to Catholic school. 
Uh, and actually, I was a trip, and then I hitchhiked home afterwards. You know, back then, think about it. A kid in high school hitchhiking home, 14, 15 years old, and it's like no big deal. You know, wasn't even still cool when I, in the no, 80s when you'd I never even considered that somebody would no. kidnap you or molest you no. or do something. It was just like, oh, they'd see me as a kid, and like everybody would pick the kid up. The worst you know? is somebody would be smoking a cigarette. Like the yeah. worst thing I ever yeah. encountered hitchhiking was somebody yeah. smoking a cigarette and be like, ah, fuck. Yeah. Now but, I'm but that was cool. So, yeah. but then I got to go to SoCal High, and uh, so, but my parents moved to the top, and all of a sudden, this is all an art community, hippie community in downtown Capitol, yeah. and all of a sudden. The barn would goes up on their walls. All the art goes up. All the hippies are coming by. Now they're all getting stoned with my parents, and wow. I'm I'm like downstairs getting all the all the. Uh, well, I'm actually taking my dad's bud and I'm getting into his bud and stuff. But then because of this, dad smoked pot too. They were all yeah. They were major smoking pot. And so cool. um, so then my mom puts an art gallery, the Rita Blake Gallery down below, and they just became intertwined. But so through that, because my dad was an attorney, because of who I was a kid going to that school, I hooked up with all the kids that were like. 18 to 22 in downtown Capitola, because I was like 14, I was like 15, so I became like the little kid, like the, like nice. the cool kid. Yeah. Well, my whole family was. I had uh, six brothers and sisters, and so we were the Blakes. You know, so you the, had the older brothers and sisters. I had two older uh, sisters, and then I have uh, one brother that's younger than me. Um, gotcha. And uh, but so we were like the coolest family, because there wasn't really anybody, that many people living downtown except for all the artists and all the people that were living around there. And so we were like the Blake family. And my parents got stoned with them, and it was like, so I started dealing for those people at, uh, started going to high school and taking 2.2 bricks, you know, uh, kilos. kilos. There were 2.2s, actually. Uh, so we'd get that, and I'd uh, make 32 lids, call them lids, to sell at high school, and then I would keep the extra few ounces, and then we'd get high all weekend. And so it'd just be like, it was incredible. I was selling like $10 lids or something, or $7 lids or something. And uh, so it was great. I just jumped right into that, and uh, I never got a haircut through high school. I graduated from high school with like hair all the way down my back. Yeah. And uh, like all the way through, my dog was a. Uh, we named my dog with my mom Hashish Hash for short. That was our dog. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of life, you know. That's really cool. And so yeah, it was a pretty uh, bohemian, uh, righteous, wonderful way to grow up. Santa Cruz is really sparsely populated and very like left wing oh. hippie beach community. Right? Oh God, it was it was even beyond that. And later on, it became the most liberal behind San Francisco County in the country. But then it wasn't even aware of itself. It was still like pre-hippie. It was just like a few of the hippies they hadn't taken over town yet. It was still farmers and it was fishermen and gotcha. and it was like a, a small towns. But there was no live oak. If you know Santa Cruz, yeah. between Capitol and Santa Cruz, that wasn't live oak. There wasn't. There was farms. It was like just farms and incorporate unincorporated, and there was nothing there. Uh, it was really just along the coast. And so I have so many memories of California in the 70s. Oh yeah. So, so I was born and raised in California. Yeah. So well, you're 50. Yeah, you're yeah. pretty young, though. But I, I just remember in the 70s, yeah. my parents like to drive a lot. Like, they're, yeah. they were really into driving around California. Yeah. And so I just have all of these movies of all of these places in California that were just expansive, amazing yeah. wilderness. And, and it was a beautiful time. It was, I was incredible. I really felt like I was at the very tail end of that 60s total hippie thing. But it was so good because I got to look back and be a kid watching it all, yeah. coming at us with the wave. Yeah. And so uh, I started dealing those... Uh, the uh, the 2.2 selling them out, and then one thing led to another, and I just started dealing, you know, blocks, and I started dealing this, and it just started coming in. It eventually uh, rolled into where those people became the ones that were bringing a lot of the. At that point, the the tie loads. Of course, I worked for. They were bringing the tie sticks, but that quickly evolved into 
they got rid of the sticks and made them stickless, called stickless tie, which became really beautiful. And you would get, they'd be like chocolate, but the really the better ones would be golden or, or reddish color. And uh, you get these, so you'd get a certain amount of those out of each load of like a thousand to five thousand pounds. But that that evolved from the stickless and an immature business with just people bringing, uh, you know, uh, Mexican and uh, and some things t stick tie and stuff in. Was, it, was the tie land like was the tie landing in Santa Cruz or was it? Well, so what happened? It it just became an organized thing. And I'd say okay. I'm I'm 1972. I'm a freshman. I'm just dealing these my little block, okay. And so the business is just there's not really an industry yet. You know, so that industry starts coming, and all of a sudden people start figuring out how to bring in loads of South American, and maybe a little bit more loads of hash, and a little bit, the, the sticks ties are coming in. They haven't organized that yet. Probably, I don't think that happened until the later 70s, about four or five years in there. But all these kids, that were hippie kids, who are growing up now and going into all these places and like infiltrating like we would in Thailand or South America and going, okay, we'll just fucking grow this shit and buy these, I'll pay these people to do it, and we'll just get this order. And it, uh, and it just started rolling. So for a few years there, it was just innocent and people were running, we were making money. Um, let me see, when was I? I first got those first loads, I was 20, 21. I was 21 with the first load, so I had to be 70, uh, I'm sorry, 78. So 78 was when I first got my first organized run of, of tie. I started getting like, I think I got a couple hundred pounds. There's a guy named Danny. These 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 uh, Florida guys, uh, Danny, weird guy, kind of a pervert guy, but he had glasses. He had all these weird glasses, and they brought this whole crew of Floridians in, and and they were the kind of cool people because they were like different, talk different, and they looked different. And so for the town, they were cool, and the girls around and stuff. So they were kind of like the ladies' guys, and they were a little older. They're like 18, 19. When they started, they were. I was 21. They were 24. They were already connected into the South American and the loads by then. All those people were, and I would be getting, you know. Uh, it went up very quickly from 100 pounds to 1,000. I think the big, I'd be getting 5,000 at a time, but, but that was 78, uh, 77 when that first started with them. I actually jumped into the other one. So there were like the, the hippie kids that had their lane that were bringing in loads, and then they had the, the Jewish families that were bringing in their loads. I mean, I worked for Jeff Simon on top of those people. Jeff and then Simon. You, Jeff Simon, yeah, he was a major old dealer at one point. And, okay. well, for me, and then, then there were the Italian, the fishermen and stuff. They were bringing, so you had the, like the Italian wing kind of bringing in because of the boats and stuff. So you had wow. different families that okay. were bringing in specific loads of stuff. Uh, and most of the time you worked for one of those families and stuff. Wow. Now it's interesting because I was with Danny, I was with kind of the hippies, and then I got together with Jeff Simon, so I worked under the Jewish clan of those people. And then I, because I was local and I knew all the people, I worked under the Italians, I'd get loads from those people. You get to bring and so, the world. Yeah, so I, I was working, I worked, I flew up pretty quick. That was a, that was a pretty quick um, thing that happened um, for me. Um, and to watch that, uh, to watch that evolve, uh, you, so how they were bringing it in, they would uh, organize it and come through, down through Seattle, and they would drop like 100,000 pounds as it got organized. Now this, this was probably coming in, they probably started like paying for one part of a ship one time to bring it into one shore. I mean, this was something that those people quickly over the course of two years, it became like, it blew up. What happened was when they get, when they took, These kids are young people very quickly realize, take the sticks off them and grow them stickless, grow them sensimia yeah. stickless, yeah. put them in two packs, they call them two packs. They'd weigh anywhere from 2.2. Two like two colas basically? No, they would be oh. a, a lightly pressed pack of colas. Gotcha. But the two packs were that they would wear, weigh from 900 grams to the top would be 1,300. Gotcha, okay. Okay, uh, with most of them coming in so between like 1,000. 
yeah, 1,000, 1,100 grams. And uh, you'd get these, and they'd peel them back. They'd be so beautiful and so fresh. They were fucking stunning. That's beautiful. And, uh, and then in each load, you get a certain amount of the golds or the, or the reds and stuff. I, I would buy, like, these guys at one point, I, um, they were like, they came down through the, the levels and said, we know you're a 1,000-pound guy or 1,000 you know, pounds, but you're doing like another 5,000 above you. How are you doing this, right? Because you're, <laughs> you're below these people. Yeah. And I said, well, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. I'm buying those 5,000 pounds or getting them you know, guaranteed to me and selling them. And then I'm selling them for like nothing, like maybe just a quarter just yeah. to get rid of them all yeah. and, and then get all the A grades of those purples and those, or you're the reds and the golds. Yeah, and then, so then, and then I'd give it to all so my people. The all the good shit would go yeah. to my people. And my people just like own the fucking, and then I'd make bank off that shit and so would they. So that's where we were making a lot of our money and stuff. Um, and they would drop, but they got organized and then you'd come down through Seattle and they dropped like 100,000 pounds there, 100,000 pounds off Eugene, 100,000 pounds off Arcata. They dropped them all the way down. And then that became a huge organized business that just flooded back to the East Coast. And all of a sudden, I was like, when this started coming in, I was like, how are we going to sell all this? I mean, when it got really big, about 81 or 82, I was like, looking at my friends, and I'm like, this is going to flood out. There's not enough people to smoke this shit. Right? Well, the other beautiful thing was, because there was no violence, there was no organized crime or anything, it was really a different time of life. All of a sudden, you could get a load like, okay, you're going to get your 1,000 pounds, and you're going to pay 1,100 bucks. And they know every, you're going to sell that for 1300 So in 1981, I was going to make 200 grand, okay, yeah. off that part of that load. Oh so God. nobody fucking, look, you just don't bother with anybody. You keep everything straight. You don't, I mean, everybody knew that was like, don't fuck with anybody. Nobody had any, I never carried a gun. There were no guns. Everything was clean. I mean, yeah, there were a couple of robberies. My guy got robbed for 60 pounds by leaving it out of the garage when he was stupid. I mean, certain things. But I mean, if you're just smart, you're doing your job. It was really clean. And uh, that ran on for about five years. Um, and so if we were making bank, everybody was doing great. We were rolling, and, uh, but th what happened was the business just blew up. I mean, people smoked more and more pot. I mean, if you go back and look, you know, you know numerology by numbers, from 1978 to about 1984, when they built the private prisons and changed everything and did the minimum mandatories, that changed it. But until that period of time, it exponentially just skyrocketed. People across America were just fucking smoking pot and, and doing acid. You know, just yes. like smoking pot, doing acid mushroom. We're like flying, and they were like, "This is not going to go on." It was getting this out is of well, no, this is well, this is not going to go on. We're yeah. stopping this shit right now. They'd formed the DEA way before. They formed the DEA specifically to deal with the brotherhood. Yeah, but they but they hadn't really done it. They they hadn't seen exponentially how big this whole load thing came in, yeah. and then all of a sudden it was like this giant organized market, and it was incredible. The size if they hadn't stopped it, we could have like had a form of transformational society towards enlightenment probably 20 years earlier. Because you can imagine if, if we had just kept smoking pot and doing psychedelics yeah. and having no violent wars and just let to go straight towards that you know, scenario and all people were doing yoga and it was meditation and we were all just fucking hippieing out, that was fucking where we were going. And they were like, that's not going to happen. I, this is I, fucking I, over. I believe and agree 100%. And yeah. that's also what happened in the War of the Brotherhood and, and uh, the left in, in the 60s up to 68, 69 when they got crushed mm -hmm. by Cointel Pro and Operation Chaos. And, you know, I, really, uh, I, I found out from Tom O'Neill in Operation Chaos that there actually was a CIA amphetamine project. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. There's FOIA hey. uh, well, documents wait. on it now. Yeah. The CIA established themselves in the hate, had undercover hippies, and they were basically giving away speed to destroy the whole acid culture in the 60s. 
you know what? And it's look, it's not provable by government look, documentation. They, they did it. It's a. If you go back and look at what they did, it was such a, a brilliant coup. Like what they do. I've been studying conspiracy theory since May Russell in 1972, with dialogue conspiracy, and it's like these people are so fucking good. They can they can do 9/11 in front of people, and 90% of the 99% of the world doesn't even see it. I mean, they're. They did. They brought that amphetamine in, and they fucked people up. They brought bad acid in to screw it up on top of that. They, right. but, they, but when they that... They were spraying paraquat on the weed. They were spraying pa paraquat on the weed to fucking kill us. And but it's still... to kill people, but to make them sick eventually. Well, well yeah, but to kill us. Parkinson's but to kill us, yeah. I mean, to fuck us up. But, but the thing about it is, is when that didn't work, then Biden got this fucking really great plan. You know what? We'll just make minimum mandatory prison sentences, and we'll just make right. them like 10 to 20 years. And you know what? And then we'll just fucking sell private prisons and let those people build them and fuck with those people bad. Yep. And we'll just fucking destroy these people. Yep. And that's what they did. They built those fucking private prisons and all of a sudden you look, all of a sudden the federal prisoner had to pay for his shit. It was almost like a third world country. You, you had to like, I mean the whole, it, it, the prison and federal prison was a country club until the mid 80s. You knew that if you ever went to a federal prison, that was like country club shit. Yeah, In fact, even, even, yeah, well, even, even the last bust before they did the big, uh, the big numbers, a guy got busted for 7,000 pounds in San Jose. He got uh, six months in Elmwood. That's what he had, I'm kidding. Okay, a year later, that would have been 15 years. So it like changed, and he got out to 250 grand. Now, that was with the best attorneys, because people gave him the best attorneys, and it was a different world. They weren't trying to do that. It hadn't like, at that point, people didn't look at it as a, the judges or cops didn't really care. The, the local cops and people around didn't really care. It became like a federal thing where like the feds came in and then infiltrated. That's how the feds came in and were part of camp here in, San, in the, uh, Mendocino. If you look at camp, that they report to the feds. When they in fact, bring in, they push in money and then all of a sudden everybody starts getting used to the money and, and really well, they, it, it's, what they say. It's, what, it's how they control it, get away with whatever they want. Yeah. When, when Tom Allman, we got him elected in 2007, uh, there were so many rumors and stories about the cops under camp doing fucking horrible shit that he had to actually turn it over to the FBI and set it publicly because he knew he couldn't go the other way because camp was working for people that he couldn't control. So he just turned it over to the FBI. What did they do? They went to their brothers at the DA and said, hey, would you tone it down? You know, and uh, then just went right back down to camp and said, okay, you guys fucking stop some of that. You can't shoot people all the time and you can't fucking steal all their shit. You know, you gotta be better at this, okay? You know, fucking stop it. And then Tom Allman's like sitting there going, well, I tried, you know, because he knows the whole thing. And he's kind of like, well, what the fuck am I going to do? You know, and now that shit's all coming out. That's all coming out, too. Those but, lawsuits from the guys getting oh, yeah. well, parts. Yeah, that was, that's, you know what, that's, open. all those people, look, they've been doing that shit up here. Forever. Those people were fucking, and you know what it was? It was a whole team of people. It was, uh, it was Bob Nashiyama was the head of camp. It was uh, Peter Hoyle. It was, uh, oh, yeah. it was uh, Rusty Noah. It was uh, Smith. It was, uh, there was a fucking posse of them. Yeah. And uh, you know what? But look, they, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not forgiving them at all on that note, but here they're cops, and they're being told by the DEA that these horrible fucking people are just horrible people. They're indoctrinated into this, and then they're told that they can do whatever they want to these people because, you know, it's, it's a punishment to get even or whatever else. And they actually think they're doing some kind of patriotic deviant act. Some of them. Some of them are just downright scoundrels. I think but, for the most part, they're traumatized individuals. Who yeah. Are, they are, yeah. They have mind conditions. They're the bullies, yeah. There was one guy that was a bully I, from I high school. I sorry for them more than I ever yeah. broadcast hate at them. It doesn't mean what they did is right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I understand. Also us. They need to be 
need ecstasy and hugs and therapy and to say sorry. Yeah, well, it's very interesting because Bruce Smith is one of them, and he's chased me forever, and his daughter works at the Emerald Cup with me. Reba. She's so cool. I, I know. Reba. I know. I, and, LIB, oh, in fact, you know what? Isn't that interesting that your pot ended up being used for that? What's that? The stuff that you made that stuff out of? Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, oh wait, wait. Oh, which, like, we don't want to, oh, we don't that, want to say so, that. So, for example, a lot of times I really appreciate surrealistic performance based retribution like one night in the in the masonic temple in downtown willis we were having a party yeah and somehow i just organized this crazy spontaneous ritual of the women taking back the altar uh-huh. and like all the girls at the party were down to do it and it turned into this super like the bubble opened it was super magical and we had all the goddesses on the altar and all the men were standing down I'm getting chills all the men were standing down and it just though it was transient and unknown except for the people right there it was also timeless and it had such power. And so the pot story is kind of the same thing where it's like, in the grand scheme of things, maybe nothing, but just the symbol, the, sim, the symbolism of it, you know what I mean? Like the symbology and, and also <laughs> the fact that we lured Reba to the carnival. <laughs> like, your daughter came to the dark carnival with us. You know, <laughs> it's more I, I fun on this side. Everything to me is fate and destiny. I don't yeah. know what the karma of it is that Bruce Smith's daughter works with me. Yeah. And you know what? I've never given her anything. I don't, I don't, I stand, stand away from that because as a parent, I don't want to ever have to look at Bruce and 100%. say that I ever did anything with whatever Reba did. She did on her own, not yeah. me. Uh, well, just so I can be cool 100%. because I can look him in the eye and tell that. But uh, yeah, and be with that. So, because I want to be cool with Bruce because at some point he's going to have to just accept this and realize that the, the thing that he hated most, his daughter's like totally immersed in. That's the best. You know, thing and uh, yeah, it's like, a, it's almost like a healing right there. It's going to come around. His own reckoning. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Some sorries to put yeah, well, together. But some of the stuff isn't really cool. But can I, can I, um, yeah. I'd like to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, you know, in the business and or not, who do you think is, uh, who do you think is your foundational mentor? Is there somebody in your life that really helped you in forming the way that you approach life and yourself at an early age? Wow, that's a very interesting question. Um, I've, lived, I've had kind of a challenging life uh, in a certain way. You know, um, I was rolling and on the way to, you know, a great life at the age of twenty, um, and uh, the person I really, really uh, would have looked to in that role, at least up until then and stuff was my dad. And uh, he was manic depressive. And, uh, you know, looking back, uh, he ended up committing suicide. Oh. And uh, as a 20-year-old guy, for me. So um, uh, it was really uh, to have one of your, you know, your hero and stuff uh, do that. So looking back, it was really hard because he was a big-time attorney, helped too many people. He really just helped everybody in the world. Uh, president of the American uh, Civil Liberties Union. Just a great guy, but a brilliant attorney. In fact, uh, uh, really a brilliant attorney. But, but um, gave away too much, and so when he had divorced my mom, it split all their assets, and he got together with the new lady with the big family, and all of a sudden he had a couple heart attacks. He couldn't work at the level he was, um, and so it was really hard for him because at one point, really, because he wasn't going to be able to support or take care of the life the way he wanted it to. I don't know all the reasons. A lot of it was just crazy. His friends were all so rich. I don't know why one of them just didn't give him a million bucks or something, but 
you know, and it wasn't just the money, it was, you know, depression, suicidal, whatever. I don't know how to reconcile all that stuff, but, yes. but he did that. Um, and it was really um, that, so for me, I went off and kind of built my own empire to prove myself, I guess, to my dad. I'd say Wilbur and certain things like going to the Wilbur Institute uh, out there. I went and went to self-help things and really um, did a lot of that, a lot of studying with different teachers and stuff. But, um, you know, my father-in-law was a brilliant mentor as a business person, although he was a drunk, we used to argue. A wonderful drunk. He would have been one of the titans of uh, Silicon Valley if he hadn't uh, really got himself thrown out of a couple of companies. He truly, he was at the very beginning. I mean, wow. he knew everything about Silicon Valley and he'd been number two at Tab Products, became like a billion dollar company and this and that. But he was just a wild maverick dude. And, uh, you know, I, I got him when he was, and it was just like, we'd have incredible conversations. And he really taught me so much. You know, crazy ass, you know, drunk in his own way, but I mean, brilliant. Not, not a bad, I mean, he just drank at night, but uh, just, you know, guy. But he was great. But um, other than that, really, I've, I've really taken care, it's a direct connection to God. I mean, I've been meditating for 50 years, and uh, I had uh, represent spirit guide drawers. I had one guy, I can show you some of my spirit guide drawers. I do transcendental meditation. Yeah, him. Yeah, him. Mantra meditation. Well, yeah, right. mantra meditation. Yeah. And um, I do walking meditations and other types of things too. Yeah. But, uh, but really, uh, that um, and uh, and just I've just been a massive step here between going to see people, um, sitting in front of holy people, or you know, um, reading, studying, practicing. Um, I've really just um, and I think because I've been a lone wolf up here. So what happens is. My dad, uh, uh, my dad uh, died, and then I came up here. I found my, my future wife. Came up here and spent a year up here. Moved back to Santa Cruz, and then immediately went to work in the business big time. That's why I was kind of in the business and blowing up. And all of a sudden, my dad died, and I was oh. like, went on a fucking six-month binge. Ran into my new future wife. She had access to a. I knew I had to get like away. So like, I just wasn't ready to work. I was ready to just fuck off and just be you know, an idiot. So uh, we got together. She had a kid. And uh, her family um, had a beautiful ranch up in Willits. And uh, she said, well, maybe we can rent it for 125 bucks a month. And so I went out with her. So let's go check it out. It's this 160-acre beautiful spread out in the middle of nowhere, this three-bedroom ranch house for 125 bucks. And I was like, we can rent here for like 125 bucks and stay here and grow a pot? And I was like, really? And uh, her cousins had the place right next door. And it was like, uh, it was a trip, but they showed up and they just had a bad experience, and so they were like, "No, we don't want anybody living there." Uh, and so they went away for a weekend, right? And I, uh, they let us stay for a weekend. They went away, and I cleaned their whole place up, the whole three-bedroom house. I brought my brother up, and we did like two months worth of work in three days. We literally didn't sleep, and we repainted it, cleaned the whole thing up, blew that, blew them away. When Ralph showed up, uh, he came back on Monday. He came back, and he looked at the, he came out, looked at the whole thing. He was like. I know you did this because now I gotta let you rent the fucking place, huh? And he goes, but fucking, I, what can I say? And he let us move in. Nice. And so I got to move in and uh, we lived next door to them. And then I became best friends with Randy. That's the whole Sherwood Ranch crowd. I Randy Pickin' Yeah, Randy, that's Randy, Sherwood. I met Randy yeah. Pond. Yeah, well that's just sharing his pond with Yeah, him. well that's, that's my oldest friend. That's Randy wow. Pickin' I lived at the place at the bottom of that. The, the Strongs had the ranch house right when you come at the end of the valley. They had the original ranch house for the whole ranch. Yeah, the 4,000-acre ranch, when you come to the very back of the ranch and then you turn onto the ranch, there, that place right there, that homestead, are, that's my ex's cousins. That's, where, that's this place I'm talking about. So I moved on to that place. Wow. 
and then became best friends with Randy and started growing up there and growing there. That's and I so sat there cool. and fucking tripped out a whole year and stuff and fucking got to know everybody. And that's where I came from. But then it was still like we went home. I still wanted to go home. After a year, I was healed, but I wanted to go back. And uh, um, I wasn't healed by, but from that for sure, but I was at least you know, stable, had a great life, put my life together. I went back and wanted to take back into that business. So I jumped in that business, we're talking about the Thai business. Yeah. Went back and saw my old friends. Okay. I jumped in there and just like blew it up. And then what, what, what caused you to come back? When did you come back to NorCal, to, to Mendo? Uh, well, I dealt, uh, I dealt all the way through most of that. In the 80s, I had property up here. I had, you know, we were doing, I was growing you up had here. somebody else growing for you. Yeah, well, you when I was living down there. Yeah, yeah, I was renting it out and stuff. Um, we're down in Santa Cruz. And then um, they, put the, they put the minimum mandatories in and they put the private prisons in, right? Now, so we go back to that. So now I got this life, I got this great life. I got this Victorian house, one of the oldest houses in Santa Cruz. Got my kids there on Ocean View Avenue, this beautiful place, you know, and- uh, It's working out. And I got everything, my family, in-laws are right down the street. I've got five brothers and sisters. I got 300,000 in the bank, I got everything. And so um, it's going really good. I start this international th studio San Jose where I did the rap label with Bootsy Collins. My friends had a record label in San Jose. They didn't have a record label yet, they had a production company. And they asked I wanted to be involved so I started putting money into that as this kind of side job, you know, started doing more and more because I loved it, you know, music, yeah. and they were doing production and stuff, and so we were down there. And at the meantime, all this kind of hit straight on where we were blowing up. I started putting more money into that, but then they changed the laws, and, I mean, the following year, something, one of our friends was up, and it was like a 15-year prison sentence. I mean, it became, like, serious really quick. And uh, my friend came to me. The interesting thing, this is a good part of the story. He comes to me, and he goes, uh, he goes, Tim, he had the best butt I'd ever seen. Became most the grease, the chronic, and the magic. It was the finest. I, I think it came from Big Sur, the Big Sur Hollywood, some kind of mixture. I never was told. They wouldn't tell me. But um, he came to me, showed me the best butt I'd ever seen. I'd never seen anything like this because I'd never seen indoor. And he goes, he, I looked at it. I was like, what the fuck is this? It was like the frostiest fucking butt in a jar. I was like, what, what the fuck is this? And he's like, this is grown under lights like you see at a Safeway. This is indoor. This is what you're going to see people do in two years because they're going to bust every one of the tie loads and, they're gonna, and the DEA is going to take out everything and everybody's going to go to jail big time and the whole industry is going to change and we're going to have to grow into these lights. And I looked at this guy like, you're out of your fucking mind. I got like 5,000 pounds in my fucking garage back there. And you're like, but this guy was like a lieutenant guy, a little older and bigger than me yeah. and he didn't know everybody. This guy was like a serious guy. He like ride, ride around on bikes all night with like headlamps on to like 50 miles, 100 miles every night on bikes. Or, you know, he was just like a big guy, Elliot. Yeah. You know, wow. he got his bike stolen once, and uh, he goes, uh, I'm going to get my bike back. And I go, he's, he goes, I know, I know it's down in the flats, down there near the boardwalk. Yeah. And uh, he fucking came back like a couple hours later, because it was down from my place, like about half a mile, and he had his bike. Yeah. And he's like, I found it. And I was like, I don't even fucking, god damn, I don't know what you did with fucking this guy. I was like, Elliot. But uh, he's, he, goes, he goes, yeah, that's what they're going to do. He's a good guy, though, very, a very honorable guy. He's like, uh, that's what's going to happen. And I was like, wow. So I bought all the pot from him. I had to pay like, I was like, God, it was like incredible. I was getting Thai pounds for 12, 14, the best pot in the world at that time. All the stuff, 15, I was paying like 3,000 for this or 4,000. What year? Huh? That uh, was uh, mid 80s. I was okay. mid 80s, go back and look, mid, mid 80s. And then we, uh, I had to go back two years later because I, I didn't believe them and they busted every load. 
to the point where there was no Lowe's left. Everybody started running to the border of Bisbee and yeah, Arizona. And so it was a big fucking thing with the Mexican going down south. Everything had to turn very dangerous, driving across fucking Arizona and shit. It was like going down to the border. And it wasn't stable deals. And there were a lot of people who did that. And I was like, fuck, it, was, it wasn't like the old days. Plus, you had the fucking prison sentences hanging over you to boot. Yeah. And uh, fuck, crazy shit. So uh, it, was, uh, it was really tough. But I had to go back and get that. And give, you had to give a 30-year crop up for six rounds. You had, for, you had to give a 30-year crop up for six oh. cycles to get the clone. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you had to promise to never give the clone to one person. Right. No, you had to pay a minimum manager. I think it was like, like 10000 bucks plus 30-year crop. Huh? I know. You know, I never, you know what, to this day, you know, the thing about it is back then, it it's really interesting. It was just weed. People, for, for me, I had Thai and Mexican, and then I had this fucking magic. They called it magic in Greece. That's what we called it. Yeah. And it was like, I don't know what the fuck it was, but I knew I had it. Yep. And uh, it was right before, for, for most people, I mean, I was in a commercial business. I, really, I look back and I think it's funny because I was in a really uh, commercial yeah. business world, and I wasn't yet really a farmer. I wasn't really, I was a business person. And even, even with that, it still wasn't... Uh, it was just a funny thing. We must have sold fucking. That was incredible. Every, every I sold. good indoor was just called this one. Oh, well, you know what? We sold that. I sold this one, or do you want this one? Well, you know, well, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what. At one point, we were selling that. You couldn't buy it. We wouldn't sell any anything. You had to pay 400 ounces, no matter how much you bought. Yeah. If you bought 10 pounds, if you yeah. bought ten, no, but that's because the very best was like 32, 34, 38. This was if you could buy, if, if there was any of that. Yeah. This was so far above everything for a couple of years until everybody got the clones and they had bred it and stuff. But it was, uh, it was incredible. So, so I had to give that up. And then they busted everybody, and everything just changed. I watched so many people go to prison. Uh, they destroyed the whole industry. The last deal I saw, they brought a load of hash in, 23,000 pounds. And uh, they brought it off the coast. A bunch of people brought it in. They were a team that, that helped do this. I think it was even more than that. That was his share. And uh, he brought it in. And I was at the celebration, like a bunch of us old cats, at a celebration to bring this load in. And I was there with, like, uh, like skinny and fatty and all these fucking old school cats and I was like uh, we, again we were, the, we were the younger side and we were like you know what this is like the last of the Mohicans if like if, like if you took a picture of this it'd be like a fucking snapshot of what's left it's like because already like it had already they've knocked off like parts of the whole thing and uh, it was like yeah it's incredible that this even happened and so and then they busted the captain uh, he ended up getting busted. And so then they, he went back to them afterwards, about a month and two months, and he wanted them all, they got 50,000 bucks, and he wanted the money back so he could pay for his way and, and get his, and those fucking people got, they got together and decided not to. And it came up to, came up to, for whatever reasons, it was a strange thing, came up to him rolling on them, and they're each doing five years, a little less than that, or him doing 20. And he rolled on them. He had to go into court and fucking roll on them, right? And, and like, a, like a ton of those fucking people went to, went to a prison off that one. And that was like the end of the, uh, the empire of that. And then people came up here and started doing the indoor. That's when everybody fell back. And, uh, you know, I moved up here. And, uh, you know, I actually had gotten busted in between that. Uh, I, I got busted uh, and almost looked at 15 years in prison. That was a, that was a crazy uh, aspect of the whole thing. So, so what happens is, is that um, I go... Um, Everything, everything goes under at that point. All the people are going down. Everything's falling apart. Uh, it was the crash of the industry. They'd taken all the business away. So in the middle of like the worst record industry, we got this big company. We're financing it. And all of a sudden, our financing, our lives are crumbling because nobody can deal with anything. All the loads have been taken out. And uh, 
they really oh they hit oh they hit uh, they they hit the industry hard. They hit us hard. We were a pretty big company, um, but that's still for us. Back to the record deal, which is very interesting in the middle of that whole thing. Just so you don't get the side of that. Yeah. We went to L.A. We had this guy Jeff Flanagan, and he had we had a deal with A&M Records and Herb Alpert himself. So my friend Tom Bocci was the head of Disney. Uh, and worked for Peter Sellers and all he did all the music supervision and all that stuff. He was I became very close with this this guy uh, Tom Bocci and uh, he walked us into AM Records. Herb Alpert they had uh, 24 24 track recording machines. They had like seven number one artists. They, we went and looked at these studios. It was 12, and it was like oh my god what they fucking had. And they were like so they were going to hook up. We had great uh, songs and they were going to hook up uh, and they had great songs. They were going to hook them up to our people and we were going to just like blow up. And they were going to cut a deal with us and. It was basically set to go, and right about then the LA riots came in, oh. right, right before then. But but to set the story up, oh. to set the story up, Jeff Clanigan in the meantime had gone to this large African American woman, as an A and R lady. He got close with her because she ran the A and R, because it was she, and, you know of course it was a hip hop division, and she was running that. So she became very close with Jeff. Jeff decided that he could quit our company and take the roster to her without us, and uh, so we're going to go down and close this deal. Right, we're it was like we've done all this stuff all these years. We got our stuff going on. We're going to close this deal. It, it was really been tough on us, and uh, we go to close this deal, and we find out that that Jeff is going to quit, and he's not going to go down with us. He's going to cut. And, and uh, so I I told my attorney Ned Hearn, and Ned goes uh, Ned goes, you know, um, tell Tom Bocci because Tom Tom is like, oh, I'm, I'm stoned, so I'm going fast now. So so. Uh, Jeff goes down and talks to the AR lady and realizes he can't take that roster because uh, Herb Alpert will never overrule uh, his friendship with us. So she's like, look, I could sign you, but this is like Tom's, Tom's like Herb's friend, dude. You can't do this shit, okay? You're just, you can't. You're not gonna be able to. So he comes back and tells us, he goes, man, I fucked up, and I wanna like make peace and just let's go in and do the deal, we'll all get rich, and then we'll, we'll just, you can fire me later. And Tom Bocci wouldn't fucking do it of his pride, and he told me later he felt fucking so bad about that. His pride, no, he's like, no, he said, I'm not gonna do it, I'm not bringing you back, it's not integrity-based, you fucked us, I'm not gonna do that. So our attorney is going, tell Tom to shut the fuck up and walk in there and cut that deal and fire Jeff, because he knows the whole situation. Ned Herney was one of the biggest people in the Bay Area, and he's going, they're not gonna overrule her, and she won't sign, because Tom goes, I'll put my name on the label. I'll use all, all my credibility as who I am, because he was major, and I'll put my name, he said, Ned goes, Herb is your friend. This is the NR department. They're not going to overrule her, and she's not signing a white dude running a rap label. So fucking shut the fuck up, and Tom wouldn't do it. And we, we walked into that meeting, and then the LA riots were going on at that point. We walked in this big round table into this meeting, and we sit down, and the first thing she goes is, Where's Jeff? And I looked over at Tom, and I was like, Oh, fuck. And Tom goes, Well, I'm in charge now. Jeff's not going to be here to uh, carry on with this and tell me to go. And I was like, I just look, and she's just like looking at Tom, like, you know. And they and and her wouldn't overrule her. They wouldn't do the deal. And uh, it was a crazy thing for us. Uh, it was really. But we had uh, we had VR going with with Jerry Lanier and uh, Brett Leonard. We had uh, uh, Brett was uh, he did my first music videos, and then he did the Lawnmower Man. He he wrote and directed wow, that, yeah. and then he did uh, Virtuosity, and now yeah. he's considered the Godfather of VR. But Brett was with us. Uh, I actually hooked him up when he did the Lone Mar Man through my guy who was working for me, David Traub, who was working with me on VR. 
Uh, we were working with Brenda Scott from uh, Atari and, uh, no, Brenda Laurel and then Scott Fisher from NASA and we had Jaron Lanier. We were putting a whole VR study thing together. We were just 20 years ahead of our time. Uh, but Brett came in to do a music video and then he did Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man and I got special credits in the movie. Everybody has credits. I got extra credits for just bringing the chronic and the magic. For stuck, stuck. I brought him for wow. David. I got credits for our company for bringing David Traub, but I got a credit for bringing them all the fucking kind all those months and shit. And so uh, that was so we had we had all this stuff going on, and it was like it was amazing that it kind of just all fell apart because the money dried up. We had no money. Uh, the, uh, the business dried up. The economy dried up, and that label. And then it was just like holy fucking shit. It was insane. And then all these people got busted. And uh, it, but it was really uh, just amazing thing. So Brett went on and did his thing. Uh, we all went on and did our stuff. And, uh, but I went up. So what happens is, so then I go back, put my street clothes back on, and start dealing again. Okay. And I start, I start fucking, but, but I'm not dealing. I'm really growing. So I decided to do this big grow in the valley. I was dealing. I was dealing, some, I, I, we, I was dealing some indoors, and I started doing some hustle. And I was like, Brian and I started moving shit. And uh, these guys, Brian hit this deal with these, uh, uh, they were, they were the finest Mexican you'd ever seen. Okay, these the things. We the pillows. They the pillows. Oh, fuck, fuck. Fuck. Yeah, we fucking almost like controlled that. We knew the guy bringing those in. <laughs> and so we ran into that, and it was like, whoa, okay, well, we started working, started getting tough, and then we ran into that, and it was like, okay, this is good. And, I, and then we started rolling. And I was like, and was good. It was like yeah, clean, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not too squished. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. we get those little organ trickles yeah. and that occasional NorCal, like humble yeah. indoor trickle. Yeah. But then when those came, it was like, dude, like this yeah. weed is like, it doesn't look as good, but smoking wise. Oh, fuck. It was, an, it was an, and it was a moneymaker yeah. across the board. It was a great thing. And then we went back and got that clone and we started doing indoors. So then Brian and I are doing indoors. We start rolling the indoors and then we um, decided to do this grow uh, in the valley. We were going to do a grow in the valley with my friend. Uh, and we actually, th this was after we got them going. We had three indoors going. And we spent a year also, we had uh, 30, 60, about 80 lights running, you know, at the beginning of it, you know. And uh, so with that, and then we worked up to the point where we were going to bring all these plants from a grow and bring them into the valley and do a big grow in the valley. Uh, and we did that. But we realized that you can't, we learned a lot of stuff. You can't chase the corn. You can't water the corn much because it doesn't look right. And the corn has deep roots. So you gotta, you, it's hard to put a clone or a small plant out there because it can't chase the corn. It's not established and you can't get it enough water. Oh, you know, you can't. Yeah, growing cornfields. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We were growing cornfields, and so in uh, the valley. In the valley, yeah, down oh, below so Los Banos. What a trip! This is like the valley, like of L.A. No, no, Los Banos. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, so what happens is. Yeah. So what happens is. Yeah. So what happens? No, no, no. So. Yeah, no. So what happens is we. We're we're in Santa Cruz. My cousin and I were partners. The companies fall apart. Everything falls apart on us, and all of a sudden we're broken, and all of a sudden like like. We're starting to do these grows with all that indoor, gotcha. and we're starting to deal gotcha. those pillows. Yeah. So now we've got our rocks on again, and now we're talking to this friend of mine. We're crazy. We're talking about renting this giant farm in the valley and just doing over there and bringing a fucking shitload, thousands of these grease and chronic plants gotcha. over there and growing them. And we did, but we got too late of a running start. The weather got hot too quick. We can't water enough, or it doesn't look right. The plants weren't big. It was hard to ever keep them growing well because they weren't. We learned a lesson. So the next fucking year, I went out. I learned a lesson. So then I, I took these operations, and uh, that was one of my, my favorite works of art I ever did. I think it was probably the greatest thing I ever did. I didn't get shit for it, but it was the greatest thing I ever did. Uh, so I realized that you gotta, what you got to do is temper the plants. They can't go straight out into that sun. they got to really Correct. have had time. Yeah. So how do you do that when you don't have anywhere legal? This is totally illegal back then. Totally. How do you find a place to grow two or 3,000 plants or four or 5,000 plants and get them to the valley? 
So I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I got my indoors operations over here. I was uh, uh, running a lot of lights at that point. Um, and uh, so I got my indoor operations. What I'm going to do is I'm going to grow these plants and then I'm going to put them out right at the right time of the year here. And I'm going to put them in like three gallon pots. And I'm going to pave something along this freeway right here, which I did along 101. Under the trees, I'm like build a canopy just under that face right there and just like all along these logging roads and shit. And I'm just going to fucking string them out there, really. And, I, and nobody's going to be looking for them really that early. It's like, yeah. so I'm going to slip them in there. And I did. And uh, I did like three, four rounds of that. So we got them up to where, like, I literally delivered 6,000 three- to five-gallon plants. And I put them in U-Hauls and then built custom racks to build the U-Hauls, like, three high. So I was bringing a plant, like, bringing a bushed-out plant like that down to the valley. And then planting the those fucking... U-Hauls been so instrumental yeah. in the weed game in California. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, the, you should give U-Haul the next Emerald Cup Lifetime uh, yeah. Except they break down. I would never use a U-Haul now. They, yeah. And everybody knows what you got. I'd never I love do when you now. see them up here, you know, and the, you always see the telltale dirt on the bumper, and you're like, yeah. guys, yeah, I'd get never. what you got, get the dirt off the bumper. Yeah, the only, uh, yeah, it's funny. The only thing is, uh, two things out there. So, so I did that. I delivered all those plants down there. Okay. One of the funny things on the way down was my friend, I was really exhausted. We were fucking loading them up all night, getting these things done, yeah. we're out, going back and forth. I was just totally beat. So this friend of mine, Whitey, who's a fucking crazy fucker, and he's a speed guy. He likes speed. But he likes it. He'd buy pounds of speed for stash and get all those guys. We were totally, he called us the Apple Dumpling Gang, and he was a, a speed guy. That's why he's Whitey. So he drops a, a speed ball in my coffee to make sure I make the trip okay, because he figured I was, I was really tired. And I don't do coffee, right? I don't do my tea. So he was thinking, okay, I'll, I'll help this guy out, and he just fucking put that in there. I swear That's to God. So I, uh, I, I was so fucking, uh, I was higher and shit, but I did make it down there. And uh, I did see, it was a funny story, though. I see. So I get down there, and they laugh, because he's called ahead and told my guys that, hey, I, I, I dosed him, right? He didn't speed him up. So when I got down there, I still was like kind of blasting there, like, well, why do you want you know he fucking did that to you? And it was like, you know, he just don't want to make you freak out or something too bad. So, uh, so we waited through the day. It was like, okay, we're going to rest, you know, for the day. And uh, so I, I did get a couple hours through the day. It was hotter and shit. We were going to wait till the end of the day to drive. So we get in the, the truck to drive the first load across the valley, right? So... We're driving across the valley, I'm driving, and uh, we pull up the stop sign, and I just, you know, we keep going and stuff, and I pull up to the next one, and it looks like I notice cars are, like, looking at me or something from the back, from the back car, or somebody on the side looking back at us, and I'm like, uh, you know, I think somebody's looking at us, and Hal's like, oh, dude, you're not fucking still cranked out, are you? He goes, don't fucking go paranoid on me and shit. I mean, fuck, dude. I mean, I, I said, you know, so I, you know, come on. He's like, I know, I know, I know, I'm just, just feeling it. I know, I don't know, you know? So we go down the road, and I'm like, you know, pull up the next stop, and I, I see it again, and uh, and uh, like, oh man, you know how? And he's like, oh fucking dude, just fucking come on, dude, don't fucking. He's, he's looking around, he's not quite seeing it or whatever else. And so we drive up to the next stop, the next place. And I'm like, you know, I, I noticed the same thing. And he's like, oh that's it, fuck it, dude. I, I can't handle this fucking shit. I'm driving. Get the fuck out. I'm, I know you're high and crank. Just fuck. Get the fuck out. I'm, we're switching. He was he was technically his farm, his boss. So we fucking get out, go around the back and stuff. And the fucking, we'd never, we'd open the window because it was so hot. We wanted to keep it cool. We'd never close the back of the fucking U-Haul. The whole fucking thing was filled with pot plants as we're driving across oh. the valley with the U-Haul. <laughs> we look at this thing. We're like, ah! fucking slam that thing down. Ah! Got in the car. We were like, ah! you know. And luckily, you know what? Back back then, oh uh, this God. was you know '92. It still was like pre-cell phone almost, and like pictures and cameras. They were, people had cameras of cell phone. Well, they, yeah, but they yeah. well they did. But they, but people didn't have, like, and nowadays with cameras and phones and oh, shit, you'd have yeah. been fucking viral yeah. or some stupid oh, thing yeah. or something. But anyway, we, we fucking took off. And uh, we did that, and uh, he ripped me off of the whole thing. 
I got 12 pounds. In fact, you know what? Later on, their friend, uh, their friend Robert, who became really a friend of mine, had told me. He said, you know, it was like, I just couldn't believe what they did. They just harvested and sold it and didn't even... Well, they, they kept running me around. My cousin was supposed to be there to help me watch this. And so they were just like taking it. They just shredded it. It's like they just did, plants just disappeared. You know? And I'd be like, there before them, there was only me. And it became this strange thing where like we would do something... I think I got, for my share, I got 20. I think we got about 30 or 40 pounds total. They ended up trying to say that out of the plants. So I know, but, you know, but see, like, I'm a, but, but I'm a, but here, I'm a freak, okay? But I'm, I'm a freak, right? So yeah. I know numbers and stuff. So we started with like 4,800. Well, 6,200 is what I grew. I delivered about 4,800. Um, they actually grew about uh, 2,600. It was when there that was actually, and these were like, Fuck, these were quarter pound plants or yeah. fucking. In fact, with this kind of plant, they could have, they might have been half pound plants. I don't yeah. know. And these people at the end, I think, because my share with everything came through expenses, it would have been about 40 pounds for me for the whole thing. For, for, for the partners, the people that did all of us, about 40 pounds. These guys actually, that's what, that's what they had me take. And I was like, I, I was close to some pretty violent shit at that point, too. I was fucking crazy. I, I really, bet. I was like, I really, like, this is my numbers are not adding up. Yeah. And they just like looking at me like, well, no, the, they were trying to tell me that a lot of it died. The numbers weren't right. They tried to tell me that we didn't have the numbers wrong. That we never had, we'd sit around and he'd go, Hal would go, this fucking crazy, oaky fucking guy would go like, you know what? We never had, you keep thinking 2,600 plants. It was really more like 900, okay? By the time the ones all died and we went through the field and it got fucked up, it was really, it was under 1,000 plants, okay? And you keep thinking we're getting fucking six or eight ounces and we're getting two. So I mean, let's get real, okay? It's fucking, it's, you know, it's 120 pounds, 150 pounds, and it's like, you guys are getting 40, fences came out, we got my cousin, my brother and I, you know, and we're just like, I'm looking at these people just like, oh my God, I wanted to kill my cousin. And that wasn't the worst of it, then I, I had to come up here, and the guy told me later on, he actually told me, the Robert, who was there the whole time, told me, he goes, you know what, he goes, I just, you know, I don't even know what, all how much they took. I mean, well, or, I mean, stuff was like 3,000 a pound at that point. So they took 500 pounds from me. That was like a million and a half dollars. Wow. Yeah. I'd, I'd actually put my old lady on, the, see, after the first year, I fucking put my old lady in the house in Spokane, and I had this house in Santa Cruz, that old place, and I got this guy, Steve Malay, and I, and we lived between that ranch and Santa Cruz, because I was growing plants there, too, and up here, growing them, and then deliver, and grow, doing all that growing and cloning and putting them under the trees and doing and then delivering them all and planting them all. I did that the whole summer and then stayed with them. Like the Mexicans all worked with me. They weren't with Hal and Hal was dying of cancer at that point. He was sick and he was just crazy. And Davey, they were just fucking okies. They were in the house. I, I live with the Mexicans. They fucking love me. Fuck. Uh, and we, we worked together. I fucking eat with them every day and shit. I didn't wear shoes all summer and stuff. And uh, we were, we were, and it was an incredible thing. And uh, I was just, uh, just a fucking, un you know, what the, that was like a million and a half bucks. So, so I'd basically given my life up. I'd lost my companies, done everything, business is over, can't do this, put this thing together, make this whole thing, work it up, I got a million oh, and a half, I got a million and a half, but I, my cousin was gonna get 400,000 just for showing up and gardening it. And he was so traumatized and fucked up and screwed up, he didn't even do it. I'm like, I, I end up almost like hating him forever, my best friend. He like lost his mind, he literally lost his mind. He didn't realize, he didn't understand how much was there until Robert, that guy was with us one day and said, no, no, it's like, Ryan, you're like, it, it would have been like, you know, you, you know, a couple million bucks. You know, and then Brian's like, like, but so it was, it was insane. So then I came up to here and I got a call from a friend 
uh, and they were having robberies up here. Because oh, after, after I'd grown all that pot, then I went ahead and did a crop here. Right. Went ahead and fucking planted this. Might as well. Oh, fuck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way we roll. And so that's like, fucking. There's any flat space? Yeah. Oh, it wasn't flat space. I was no, fucking, I, know, yeah. I was notching out fucking shit all yeah, over yeah. the place, roads and cutting stuff. Um, but we had two little, two little uh, places to grow in. And so then uh, I was on my way up, and my psychic lady, who uh, told me I was going to get robbed in the valley, but I didn't realize that bad, she, she was like, man, it's so bad up there, I, I wouldn't even go to him. She said, I feel like it's the worst uh, evil. I feel like I would not go. I would give the crop up. And that was feel, because of this place. No, this, no, I didn't own that. I owned across the street. No, no, but I'm saying it was the people here that were robbing? Or no, no, there wasn't, they weren't here. This was a okay. professional group. They were called the, Mer the Mercer Brothers, actually. One of them's dead. One of them, Dennis, knows. And I, I know it was that because people told me. Wow. So, uh, so what happened was, I, I'm, I'm like, I got to go in there because I've already lost all my shit. That's a fucking hundred, that's about a 200-pound crop. That was like about a six, $700,000 crop, and that was right. mostly mine. Yeah. You know, and it was like, fuck, I'm, if I don't give a fuck, I'm going after, I'm getting it. So my friend goes up there. He's got a piece of it. I mean, I did, you know, half a million of that would have been mine. So I came up and uh, surveyed the scene. They really had only hit lightly. It was early. It wasn't really ready to pick. They, they looked at the whole thing. They took in some early stuff. And they, you know, they'd come in, but it was like, but they chased them off. They fired weapons. You know, we, we, and and uh, I was like standing there, and we were w walking through the both meadows. And in the second meadow, I'd heard the story, because I was up there pretty quick. And I was like, you know, I was walking down because between here and the creek, it's about 100 yards. I said, I don't feel like these people on the, on the other side of the street. Uh -huh. So I don't think these people even, they might not even left. And so then I started heading towards the creek, oh, feeding the bushes and stuff and doing it. And sure enough, we flushed out two of them. And I was like, fuck, I didn't have a gun at that point because I didn't realize what was going on. I, I didn't realize we needed one. So I'm chasing them down to the creek, fucking right on their fucking tail. I got my dog with me. And I, and, uh, no, I didn't have my dog with me. She wasn't there. And so, because I didn't realize anyone. So I'm fucking chasing down the creek, and they leaped right over the fucking side about a 15-foot thing, man. I was like, I watched them, and I was like, fuck, they came down hard and fucking just got up and kept going. I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm not going over that. And uh, I stopped, and it was, there was two of them. I realized I didn't have guns. My guys came late, and, and uh, they'd seen we had guns and stuff. I think the other guys had fired a shot just around and stuff. And so uh, I thought we were going to be okay. So we went back, and I thought, okay, these guys know we're serious. We're here. We're on it. We got it. So that night, they fucking uh, took the main meadow, and I stayed in the small meadow with a uh, with shotgun. And uh, I was over on the, that side, and I laid down. I was to go to bed at night. It was early and stuff, of course, dark, early. And so uh, I lay down, and I'm laying there for a minute, and uh, I think I hear something about 40 yards up. It was on a kind of a hill that we were growing on. So from where I was sleeping in the sleeping bag to where the top plant was, it probably was 40 yards, about 40 yards, you know. But I hear really good. And uh, so I lift my head up. And all of a sudden, it stopped moving. Oh, and I went, I went, wow, what was that? So I laid my head back down, and, I'm, and I heard it moving again. And then I lifted my head up, and it stopped again. And, I, and this was like before I'd really even heard a night vision. I was like, I was thinking, what the fuck? I'd, I'd heard something about night vision. It was just coming in and stuff. But I was like, what the fuck is that? And, uh, and then all of a sudden, I put my head back down. And then I heard a clip. I, I, you, know, you know, obviously, somebody cut a bud. And I'm like, okay, I can't deny that, and I have to do something. I got to do something, and uh, should have ran. <laughs> no, no I, that's not true. But uh, I, I'm just kidding. So I went. So I got up, and I was like, okay, I got to do something. So I went up. I said, you know, with my flashlight and the shotgun, and I went up, and I could see as I got closer this uh, silhouette of a guy with like uh, kind of camo and a hat, uh, a hat of sorts, behind the tree, 
And uh, I was like, okay, I see you. I got you, okay? Now look, I don't want to fire this. I don't want to have any, I don't have any problems. I just want you out of here. And all of a sudden I hear a fucking guy cock a gun below me. These guys are like, and I'm just like, oh my God. So now I'm like, what the fuck? I'm sitting there and really quick. I was like, put the gun up and I kind of looked around and I was like, well, maybe I, maybe I didn't see anything. You know, I just kind of, you know, kind of started backing out and uh, kind of backed out. And the trail was about halfway between the t where my sleeping bag was and the top of the hill. About 20 yards down, there's a trail that goes to the main meadow. And I fucking hit the trail and just got behind me and started running, right? At that point, I realized, okay, there's multiple people. They're more than willing to, to set me up, put guns on me. Yeah. They're coming here, even though I don't have a weapon. I'm rationally thinking about this very quickly. These are very serious people. <laughs> I'm not running, but these are very serious people. No, no, and I'm fucking, uh, so, no, no, so I ran and got my guys. Yeah. I ran and got my guys and told them what was going on. and oh, said, shit. we're going in, okay? Yeah. I said, we're going in, but listen, this is what we're dealing with, okay? Wow. And I said, don't let these people get behind us into the main meadow. Okay, we have to keep them because I didn't know how many there were or what we were dealing with. And I was like, there might only be two. Hopefully, there's just two people. And so, uh, and maybe they wanted to get away. You know, I'm thinking, maybe they want to get away. So, um, so we, go, uh, we go in, and I said, don't let them get behind us. So we come in, uh, and then we get in. Um, there's three of them, there's four of us. And we get into the thing, and we're trying to find them, and they were behind us, and then they got onto the trail, right? And they got onto the trail going to the main meadow. And it's about... 75 yards over to that, maybe 100 yards over to that meadow trail, up and down. It's, you know, doing. And so they had a head start by the time they got, got ahead, and we turned around and I was after them. So we're, we're chasing them, and like, uh, I, I fired a weapon. Now, one of the guys, the other guy, because it wasn't a shotgun, they fired a weapon. I was fucking bummed I had a shotgun at that point. They fired a, a weapon, because it was a pistol, and uh, then as we got over there, we realized that even though that was happening, the lead guy was taking time to stop and cut a bud. And I was like, fuck these people. I mean, like it was a cola, but it was like, man, these people are fucking crazy. And so I was like, what? Yeah, I'm like, who the fuck are these people? And, and, so, and, and the thing about it is, it said, they seem to come out of nowhere. And, uh, and how did they get there? And how did they do this? And so all of a sudden, I, I got together with the guys at the table. I said, look, 